produced by the Better Living Institute and sponsored by App Judo for your app software needs, Bullet Pad for building lists on your iPad, and also supported by donations from our listeners, folks like you. We're Kira and Bill Van Ittersom. Today's book is called Griffin and Sabine, An Extraordinary Correspondence. It was written and illustrated by Nick Bantock, and it was published in 1991. Griffin and Sabine eventually became part of a trilogy, which is now called the Griffin and Sabine Trilogy. In 1992, Nick Bantock released Sabine's Notebook, in which the extraordinary correspondence of Griffin and Sabine continues. And in 1993, he released The Golden Mean, in which the extraordinary correspondence of Griffin and Sabine concludes. He wrote and illustrated all three books, and all three books were published by Chronicle Books of San Francisco, California. Now, we'd like to give you just a plot summary of the book. So, Griffin Moss is an artist living in London. He makes his living uh, making postcards. He's unhappy and lonely, though he's unaware of these feelings. His life has changed forever when he receives a cryptic postcard from Sabine Strohem, a woman he's never met. Like Griffin, she's an artist. She illustrates postage stamps and comes from a fictional group of small islands in the South Pacific known as the Sikman Islands, Griffin and Sabine begin corresponding regularly. Griffin comes to realize that he's in love with Sabine, who reciprocates his feelings, and that they are soulmates. However, his growing uncertainty as to Sabine's true nature and the changes her presence has caused in his life develop into fear, and he ends up rejecting her offer for him to come to see him in person. He comes to the conclusion that Sabine is a figment of his imagination, created from his loneliness. It appears to be true, until another postcard arrives from Sabine, with an ominous promise that if he will not come to her, she will go to him. In it, she writes, Griffin, foolish man, you cannot turn me into a phantom because you are frightened. You do not dismiss a muse at a whim. If you will not join me, then I will come to you. Sabine. In the second volume, Sabine's Notebook, Sabine moves to Griffin's house in London while he wanders through Europe, North Africa, and Asia, backwards through layers of ancient civilizations, and of himself. In the final volume, The Golden Mean, The mystery of the two artists deepens and their questions grow more urgent. New obstacles, including a sinister intruder, test the tenacity of their passion, and in each letter, or postcard, painting, and prose are even more richly intertwined. They're not long books, by the way. Each book is like a work of art, but it's only about 40 pages long, so that's 40 pages in each volume of the trilogy. They can easily be read in one sitting. But what I want to point out about the book is that each one of them bears a lot of thought. You're going to find yourself spending actually a lot of time enjoying and analyzing all the material in the book. Each one has actual letters with envelopes. You open the envelope, you pull out a letter. Inside the letter is um, an artistically done handwriting or, in some cases, typewritten letter. 
and each one has its own personality. Each of the characters, you can see their personalities represented in the handwriting and in the presentation. So you're going to be wondering about them and learning about them through the actual written piece. You're going to see things like maps and going to be looking to see what the dates are and how these dates correspond. How long is it taking each letter to arrive? And uh, we were looking at this and Bill and I determined that we thought maybe about two weeks between each letter. Can you imagine that today? We shoot off emails and we correspond within seconds. And in their day, they were waiting for two weeks for another piece of mail to arrive. Actually, longer than that because it was two weeks for one to go out and then two weeks for the response to return. This is a a very slow pace, something that we don't have any concept of today. Another thing about this that's so wonderful about this correspondence is you really do have this really naughty thrill of reading someone else's mail. It's just really fun. The book is just fun to experience. It's um, fun on all different levels. It has this amazing artwork, and the artwork is surreal and very lovely. It's, it's perhaps even disturbing at times, you know, depending on what the characters are going through. They draw strongly on creativity and a keen imagination. So these artists are sophisticated. The stories are told in a sophisticated language. Their communication is extremely sophisticated. You have this tactile experience of actually touching a piece that was created, actually created by another person. They're not sending conventional postcards back and forth. They're actually creating each one. So it's a piece of art done by that particular character. It's a love story, beautiful love story, complete with unfulfilled desire and you know, all the titillation and urgency of wanting to know the other person. This feeling of sexual tension and anticipation that's built up, waiting for each letter to travel, and all the process that goes with that. They represent, I think, a kind of what I call a cornucopia of delight, all aspects of self. The physical aspect of touching, the physical letters, the intellectual, and even the spiritual. They evoke a lot of what I would call self-reverie. You find yourself relating to them on whatever level you relate to them on. You'll be examining them. You'll be reminded of things about your own life. You'll be, maybe if you don't have a relationship, wanting a relationship like this one. And the reader has a sense of kind of exploration and movement because these characters Well, one of them lives in kind of an exotic location, and one of them lives in London, which is, you know, also a very diverse and interesting area. So, you know, you have this sense of travel and the sense of movement, and it it sort of awakens you and enlivens you. And it also awakens the creative center in each of us because we're being exposed on so many levels to so much creativity and energy. And there's this mystery. What's going to happen? Are they going to meet? Are they not going to meet? You know, where where will they meet? And what will happen when they meet? So it's really very intriguing. There's this sense of buildup as you're reading the books, and particularly when you read them the first time. And it's a different age. It's a very slow pace. So, you know, there's sort of this deliciously tantalizing sense of waiting and waiting and waiting 
and all of that that goes into building up a love story. You now have the ability to rush out and get these books. You probably will want to just rush through them and read them, but I want you to remember that when they were written, they were written actually each volume was, you waited another year for another volume to come out. So you didn't get to read them instantly. You had to savor the experience. So I think the books need to be savored, and I'd caution you to just rush through them. I think you should take your time and just really get the full experience of each volume. It, you know, it actually takes time to bring yourself fully to this material and really get the gist of everything that's there for you. We need to take a break for a moment to thank a sponsor. This segment of our program is sponsored by App Judo, your complete web and mobile application development service. The Japanese word judo means the gentle way. The martial art of judo got this name because it signifies maximum efficiency and mutual welfare and benefit. App Judo follows these same principles in all its software development projects, using the best technologies and computer science principles to serve clients' needs elegantly and intelligently. App Judo prides itself on building attractive and intuitive user interfaces that your customers will easily understand and love to use. Whether you want to design and build a new app or refactor and redesign an existing app, App Judo can help make your project a success. Visit AppJudo today at www.appjudo.com. In researching this podcast, we uncovered two really excellent interviews with Nick Bantock. The first is called The Book is in the Mail, and it was edited by Pam Lambert and collected by Johnny Dodd. This was published in People Magazine, October 5th, 1992. The second interview is from January Magazine, published in 1998, Linda L. Richards as the interviewer. She's also the editor of the magazine, and that was an especially wonderful interview. Nick Bantock grew up in London, England, and he was trained as a fine artist. His art career consisted primarily of doing book cover illustrations for various publishers, and he began to get the reputation after a while that he was the quirky artist. He always liked to do one-ups as opposed to a detective series or a children's series or something that was more predictable. And after a time, they appreciated the fact that they could send their quirky stuff to this quirky artist. Eventually, he moved to Canada to Bowen Island, which is approximately an hour out in the sea west of Vancouver, British Columbia. Bowen Island is probably as small as some of the fictional islands that Nick Bantock imagined and drew up in his Sickman Island group that lies in the South Pacific. He continued to do his book cover illustrations, and in the mid-80s, he began to do pop-up books for children. One morning in autumn in 1989, Nick Bantock was in town checking his mail when, out of the corner of his eye, he watched one of his neighbors removing something much more intriguing than the bills and junk mail that he received. It was a sky blue envelope, and it was plastered with exotic stamp. He said to his neighbor, Oh, I want one of those. The neighbor smiled as he left with his mail. 
And on the way out of the post office, Nick said, it dawned on me that if you can't get the letters you want, you have to write them yourself. Well, this event became a fortuitous one for Nick Bantock because with all the ideas rolling in his head and with his recent success with some pop-up books for kids, he went into a studio and he created a very interesting picture book, but for grown-ups. And he named it Griffin and Sabine, an Extraordinary Correspondence. Well, it's part epistolary love story. It's part art book. It's a tale of a mysterious relationship between two artists who live on opposite sides of the globe. It's called A Funny, Strange, and Lovely Creation by the Toronto Globe and Mail. As of the early 2000s, it had sold, with its trilogy, over 3 million copies. The books combined had been on the New York Times bestseller list for over 100 weeks. So, in the book publishing business, you could pretty much call this a smashing success. Nick Bantock says he gives much of the credit for Griffin and Sabine's success to the lure of this increasingly novel commodity, the letter. He says the telephone is a great knee-jerk machine, but if you really want to tell someone how you feel, you need the slowness of the letter. In a society where everything is fast, it's like going out in the country and looking up at the stars. What's interesting about this book is that it's written in postcard and letter form, but you actually see the postcards and read the back and front of the postcards, and you actually open up the envelopes to pull an actual letter, and you unfold it and you read the letter. It's very interesting. You end up with what we call the voyeuristic friction of peeping at someone else's mail. Nick says that he wrote what he wanted to write, not what he thought was particularly good writing. And this is especially because in in high school, they had taught him that he couldn't write to save his life. So he never considered himself a writer, Mm -hmm. only an artist. So if you have one character, Griffin, in London, and the other character, Sabine, in the far South Sea Islands, their only means would have been a very expensive telephone call or postcards and letters. And that's the form that they ended up choosing. It's, it's absolutely true. The world has changed completely since these books were written. Um, they were written at a much slower time. In fact, the last 20 years have gone so fast and so furiously that it just, in many ways, seems like a blur in my mind. I don't know about you, Bill, but that's how I feel. I want to talk a little bit, too, about the fact that it is a love story and I think that the love story, as you go through this, you sort of get a broader message. There's sort of, um, what is a love story? And what is a love relationship? What does it really mean? You begin to start examining all of that, you know, what it represents. I think their love, and in particular, Griffin's travels, serve as a metaphor for the unresolved soul quest. So the part of each of us that searches for its own fulfillment its own home, and a sense of balance. You know, all aspects of merging into one greater stream of consciousness as two people become one in a relationship. As the story unfolds, the characters begin to merge and grow into this kind of oneness, and each is kind of adopting the characteristics of the other. In the beginning, they're very different. But at the end of the trilogy the characters are beginning to be more and more alike. 
As Griffin travels, you see that each area explored represents a part of a person that needs to be examined and understood before one's ready to really rise to the occasion of real love. And as the relationship between Sabine and Griffin grows, there seems to be less urgency and more knowingness. They each begin to sort of accept each other as they are. And they also accept the fact they're meant to be together. They're each willing to do whatever it takes to make the union happen. And toward the end of the trilogy, both characters do begin to feel and know that there's some powerful connective force at work in their lives. So this sort of bears discussing, I think. Is there a sacred agreement in a relationship? Maybe some of the other questions might say, you know, do we come together for a prearranged purpose? Can even a relationship maybe that doesn't work out be a good growth experience created out of a higher form of love? What do you think about that, Bill? So it's almost like we're talking about predestiny in relationships. And a lot of us have this feeling, whether or not an event is predestined or is our whole life predestined or is it all planned out and are we really actors or can we change things? It kind of begs the question of soulmate and it begs the question of you know special persons and things of this nature. It's an interesting question. I know that when I met Kira, there was an electric shock And I told a friend of mine, I could really get into her, but I wasn't free at that moment to make a choice or make a decision. And it did take quite a while, two or three years before, you know, things worked themselves out. Nick Bantock answers some of that when he says, what I'm proposing is that you don't really meet someone you don't manifest your internal need until you have dealt with it internally, at which point that special person appears, quite literally. And you can look at that on a supernatural or a metaphysical level, or you can look at that at a purely functional, ordinary, basic level. And he's talking about just the ordinary, basic reality. It would appear that Griffin and Sabine, well, in particular, Sabine was able to experience Griffin as an artist for approximately 13 years before she finally discovered who he was and where he lived. And this is why she started corresponding to him with the very first postcard. That was, of course, a shock when Griffin received the postcard because, think about it, Someone writes you a letter and says, I can see your artwork and please send me a postcard that represents this other particular piece of art that you created a while back. So he's wondering, who is this person? Why is she aware of my art? How does she see things that I haven't published yet? Of course, that gets his curiosity going and he's very much interested to find something out. He, he corresponds back because he wants some answers. But as you get further into the book, Nick Bantock forces you to grapple with the questions of, are Griffin and Sabine soulmates for each other? Can you meet your special person at a certain time and place and then not pick up on it? 
if you don't act on it, Griffin took off at the beginning of the second book and, as Kira said, traveled all over Asia, North Africa, eventually ending up down in the South Pacific. He was within striking distance of going to her island and seeing what it was like there. Is that possible that you, by not making the right choice or by not choosing, by not deciding to choose, you are going to miss out on this special person that was predestined for you? What if you're sleepwalking through your life and you don't connect? Your intended moves on because they get tired of waiting. Sometimes Kira and I watch stories or read books where young people, perhaps in high school or in a war setting, became lovers and they didn't finish that experience. Then... They might meet when they're in their late 60s or mid-70s or even early 80s and try to reconnect. A whole life has gone by. Sometimes one or maybe both of the partners has married some other person. Then they try to reconnect. All the experiences they might have had being together, maybe having children together, growing old together, that cannot happen now because they're elderly themselves. They can have an experience. They can do the final part of their life together. So it begs the question. Do you think maybe we have uh, guardians or people out there who are maybe on another level trying to help us? And I think about this sometimes because when we first met, as you say, you know, I met this wonderful man and he was just so sweet and attentive and I thought, what a wonderful person. But he didn't make any overtures toward really becoming my boyfriend or really express a deep interest in me necessarily but I did feel very comfortable with him of course what really helped was when I heard from his friend that he had told that he could really get into me I heard those words from her mouth when she told me about that and I thought that was a pretty heady experience thinking of you know that that really piqued my interest a little bit but time went on and really nothing significant was happening in terms of overtures in my direction. And eventually I did lose heart and I just sort of left and, you know, went out west. I was out there for a while and then circumstances changed and I came back. So I have to wonder what changed those circumstances and, you know, why did I end up coming back here? But very shortly after I came back here, Bill did make the overtures that were necessary for us to become a couple. Maybe he was afraid I was going to leave again. I'm not really sure. But we've been married now for quite a long time and have grown children. And still, I think our relationship's going strong. So maybe when you're meant to be together, you'll get some help along the way in terms of really becoming a couple. What do you think, Bill? Well, I'm sure the audience is on pins and needles trying to figure out the rest of the story. So I was married at the time, although I hadn't been sharing that point of view with many of the friends in that group that I was in. I was separated, and I was in a quandary of of exactly how to proceed. It, It did appear very strongly that my wife and I were not going to get back together again. At the same time, I had lost my job, and it was in the middle of a downturn in the economy. And so I was working towards finding some new full-time employment. So I really didn't have the wherewithal to support another person either. 
I really had a lot of questions that I had to answer. But when Kira did return from out west, we lived in the Midwest at the time. We lived in Michigan. In fact, she came back just in time to experience winter. <laughs> you got to ask yourself, what was, what was I thinking? But my thought was that we were like two ships passing in the night. If I didn't do something, the ships would just continue to pass. We'd already gone through that experience where she left and went out west, and I went about my work and my business. I decided that time was time, and even though I still hadn't developed a substantial career or a substantial income, that we had to do what we had to do. The rest is history, I guess, as they say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a happy history. Yes, a happy history. <laughs> I'm sure each of you has your own story to tell of how you got together and whether or not you think that was orchestrated by some divine intervention here and there. And, of course, there is no right or wrong feeling about this. We're just disclosing how it happened for us. Griffin and Sabine brings forth a lot of those old feelings. You begin to sort of feel them again. It introduces the reader to art and, I think, history, and it creates a sense of enlargement in life. It sort of gives you the ability to imagine, I would say, almost compelled to have your own adventure of some kind, you know, whether it's real or imaginary, it prompts you to begin to ask questions, you know, what are my connections? What is my driven agenda? What is it that I yearn to complete? And what seeds of wisdom do I wish to implant? You know, we go through life and sometimes I think we begin to think as maybe Griffin and Sabine did, you know, am, am I mad? Is this real? Is this really happening? Is this worth my time and effort? We have all kinds of things going on. We have the introduction in this book of things like time warps and the feeling of alternate realities begin to sort of come into play. And there's also the concept in the third one of dark force. You know, there's a dark force that comes into play. And we also have the feeling that there's a positive force at work, which is helping them. You begin to sort of ask yourself questions. Should we be free to examine life? Should we follow rules as set down by others? Or, you know, if we veer too far off from the norm, then what? Are we crazy? This book begins to sort of make you really think about life on many different levels. It's a challenge in many ways as well. Again, because Nick Bantock is trying very hard not to give the answers. He is encouraging, maybe forcing some cases and certainly tickling us to ask, like Kira said, should we be free to examine life? Well, why not, right? Life is such a, well, it's especially a hustle bustle right now. It is so stress-filled at times. It's moving at such a pace. That's one question that we could ask. Why is life moving at such a pace? Why are the electronics driving our experience to such an extent? I watched my granddaughter I have three lovely grandkids, and my youngest granddaughter is three and a half, and watching her is just so much fun. But her experiences are so different from my experiences. She plays the iPad. She plays DVDs, and she knows how to load them herself. She knows how to, to turn all the equipment on. She is so engrossed 
in what's happening on the screen from one screen to the next screen. You know, she'll be on a wall-sized television at one point, back to the iPad, back to the television, back to the iPad. Sometimes two or three things are on at once. I'm waiting for the time when she's going to have her own cell phone. She'll probably be doing three or four things at once. So we are in such a different world. That's part of the questions that we might ask. Why is this happening? Why is life for human beings speeded up when for 20,000 years it has been, you know, as exciting as watching the grass grow? Exactly. Um, Their life is just so different because their experience, all of this is very normal to them. You know, when we were children, we didn't have these things to play with. We didn't have iPads. We didn't even know what iPads were. But we played with very simple things. The children today are very active, and yet I notice they still appreciate those simple things. When we go to the park and they sit in a a box of sand and they busily do things with their hands and create objects and little towns and whatever their imagine wherever their imagination takes them, but it's a totally different experience that they still enjoy. And yet in their everyday lives, they're also so accustomed to doing things that we had no concept of when we were children. So we live in very different worlds. Bill and I always have the sense that we're running to keep up with them. You know, we're we're running behind most of the time. They're way ahead of us. And that's delightful. It's delightful to see. It sort of gives us something to reach toward. But we also want to share the things that we were exposed to as children. We're always also working to slow them down a bit. So we'll be pulling out the books that they can actually open up and look at and experience a story that's on a slower level. And they appreciate that too. So I think there's room for both worlds. The lucky thing for them is they get to experience both worlds. I think that's really, in many ways, delightful to be born and to be living in an age when there is so much to be experienced. Nick Bantock has created a multiplicity of worlds for his two characters. Even though we have totally removed the electronic medium from the story, he's created a reality world and a surreal world. He's created experiences where the two lovers, maybe it's possible that they're going to be prevented from contacting each other in pure reality form. Maybe their love affair is only in the psychic world or the surreal world, and it doesn't even live here on the reality plane. So that's part of the trilogy. That's part that I'll leave you to discover if you haven't read the books yet. I don't want to be a spoiler. From Griffin's point of view, you know, maybe they'll self-combust. That's not his mm-hmm. words. That's my paraphrasing. But he has a lot of fears that are generated from the surrealism of trying to grapple with their relationship and how it evolved from scratch and how it possibly will resolve itself. You also have the tenderness and the tension of a love affair where the two lovers have never touched. Everything is happening by mail, (laughs) and now they touch each other's mail, so they have the tactile sense of what it's like to experience the other's pure creativity, creativity in its purest form, as two artists can only communicate to each other. But touching a letter is not the same as touching a person's skin, as touching their hair, as laying down with them. It's a very interesting sexual tension that's being created. In the third book of the trilogy, The Golden Mean, 
the letters began to reflect the level of sexual tension. Some people have actually called them erotic. They're not meant for kids. I'll say that out right now. Be careful who gets a hold of these <laughs> books in your home. But it's not porn either. You know, it's it's not Very ugly. artistically done, yeah, I would say. Yeah, it's not ugly. It's all writing. It's not, there's no picture format that's being Yeah, there's, there's yeah. very little nudity, I would say, in the books. There, There is some. You get the impression that it's like a statue or something from ancient times. You don't have the sense that it's a modern drawing. There's a lot of symbolism in the drawing, too. A lot of really interesting things in the drawings as you go through. So as Nick Bantock is grappling with the questions that he's creating, he says that he does not give answers. So what he's actually trying to do is encourage people to ask questions for themselves or even form their own question. What happens within the realm of the story also happens in the realm of a fantasy world that he's created around the characters. And this fantasy world begins to eat at the edges of history and reality. He likes to think of history as something that you can't particularly trust. He likes to look at the relationship that's happening on the pages as something that you can't quite trust, and partly because he's created two characters that he feels are actually trying to cover their own dishonesty, as he says in his work. So one question that always comes to mind is, is history real? Of course, we have to remember that history is always written by the winner, is always written by the conqueror. So it's really their history. It's not the history of who got beat. Kira has mentioned that women have not been very well represented throughout the ages, whether it was in 18th century England or whether it was in the early 20th century in America. The woman's point of view hardly ever gets told, and if it gets told at all, it's often very incomplete and oftentimes wrong, and you have to dig. We still have laws being passed primarily by men in Congress that have to do with our own bodies. You know, it's it's kind of uh, disheartening to be a woman at this time watching that happen in this day and age. And that's only one example. We can come up with many examples uh, based on ethnicity or someone's religion or their skin color as to how their history has been downplayed or eroded or even trampled on. As Griffin goes on his journey, you are faced with what is really real as he grapples with the art, as he grapples with the sensations that he's having. The art is showing up on the cards and letters that he sends to Sabine, and she's trying to understand the things that are happening in his growth pattern. But it's a strain, and it's a strain on both of them. It's a strain on their relationship. And so we see that there's various truths that you're faced with throughout your life and how you come to grip with those truths and how you answer those truths and whether you come to accept them or reject them because someone else is setting down this history and someone else is setting down that this is truth when it may not be. When, as we look at it deeper, we go, wow, what a lie. That was just nothing but a lie. Well, and I think, you know, we begin to realize after a while that we really are creating, just as they're creating their own experience in the art that they're sending to each other. Each of us is creating our own experience in life as well. And we do have control over that, thankfully. We can make certain adjustments. 
We can determine who we want to be with. We can determine where we want to live. We can determine what we want to do with our life. We do have a lot of freedom. And this is kind of like you said, if history is written by the conquerors, then, you know, maybe we better make ourselves the conquerors. Or maybe we'd better at least conquer our own life to the extent that we have control over it. Everything is subjective in life. Our experience is always subjective. My experience will be different than yours, Bill, and yours will be different than mine. That's a given. When we can come together and agree, that's wonderful. When we don't agree, we have to agree not to agree and be civil and caring in the process, I think. I think that kind of segues back to that question that we said, are people trying to cover their dishonesty? Nick Bantock says you can't really understand his two characters because they're trying to cover their own dishonesty. What do you think about that? What, what, where is he going with that? That word dishonesty seems charged here. Well, you know, I think that we we do probably always have things that we don't want other people to know about us. That is one of the greatest fears, I think, of being in a relationship is that the other person will see something about us that they don't like, especially when there is this sort of tension and wild attraction between people. When people first meet and they have that attraction going on, the last thing you want to do is do something that's going to turn it off before you have an opportunity to actually develop a relationship with that other person. You're always trying to put your best foot forward trying to look good, right? We want to look good to the other person. Sometimes that's a huge mistake because we really want to be who we really are with the other person. Over and over again, we see this, how important it is. Get to know someone first before you get too heavily involved. Make sure they know enough about you and make sure you know enough about them. And and yet, how many of us pay attention to that when we're attracted to another person on that level? It's just like that all goes right out the window and we know that. So we're, you know, how as parents, we're always trying to get our kids to be careful and not make these mistakes. But mistakes are a part of life, I guess. It's not like it's the end of things if you make a mistake here and there. That's how we're going to learn. But I do think it's really interesting that we do put forth our best, what we consider our best. We're not interested in having everybody see all the skeletons in our closet. On that level, I think, yeah, we are dishonest. It is dishonest. No way around it. But I think most of us are dishonest. In the, on that level. So putting your best foot forward is cheating a little bit, from what I hear, from what I hear Kira <laughs> saying. Well, watch The Bachelor show on television. You'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> Our lives really are presented in layers. I mean, you're going to see the icing on the cake, and then, you know, you're going to eat down, and you're going to get to the bottom of the thing, of, you know, you're going to get into the meat of the situation. And it's the same way with people. What you see on the surface is usually really pretty, but, you know, once you start digging into it, everything gets kind of messy, right? And that's kind of how our lives are. We're multidimensional. And so this book gets you into all of that. It gets you mucking about into your life. What is it? Who are you? What do you really think? What do you really feel? Then the understanding that at some point you have to begin sharing this with someone else if you intend to have a relationship with them. What does the word multidimensional mean to you, Bill? In context with Griffin and Sabine, I think that multidimensional means that I have to grapple with not only their story, my feelings, uh, my appreciation of the artwork, my excitement of watching their love story unfold, and 
again, as we've said earlier, the titillation of reading their mail, which mm-hmm. is kind of a naughty experience. Our parents always taught us never to read someone else's mail without permission. So all those together help form my multidimensional experience. And then I think as I'm looking at the artwork, Kira mentioned once way early on that some of it can actually be disturbing. Uh, Some of the images, you definitely would have to call them modern art. Definitely have to say they wouldn't be in your standard art museum. But they are very much fine art. They're lushly drawn. Although Nick Bantock uses a variety of techniques with his art. He does collage. He does painting. He does watercolors. He does splatter, like from toothbrushes splattering the pigment onto the paper over the top of other artwork. He uses photocopy techniques. It seems that each picture has a degree of symbolism so that you have to look at it not only in its context to the story, but in its context to the evolving nature of the individual who did that particular piece of work, whether it was Griffin or whether it was Sabine. So you're watching them grow as you're looking deeply into the picture. You're also watching some of the disturbed nature of Griffin's mind as he's grappling with the relationship as some of his artwork goes off the deep end. So Uh the multidimensional nature for me there is that I'm being forced to look at myself, not only how I respond to the pictures, the images that the pictures create for me, and even some of the mythic symbolism because he does use myths from Europe, he uses myths from Egypt, he uses myths from North Africa, he uses myths from Japan, and I've been fortunate enough to study many of those myths during my lifetime. And so as I look at the pictures, I can say, oh, look, that's from the ancient Egyptians. Look, this is what he's doing with the Sphinx. And, Uh oh, look, here is uh, the samurai here are players from the No Theater, N-O-H, No Theater from Japan, as if he was maybe embracing the culture of Kyoto. It's very interesting from that point of view to see how all of these multidimensional layers, one on top of another, affect me when I'm actually reading the story. And when I read it for the very first time, when I brought it home and showed it to Kira, And we read it together. We had a very childlike enjoyment of this very adult picture book. And we were just so tickled by all these aspects that we had said. The beauty of the artwork. In such a small little book, you've got an art museum in a tiny book. And yet, because it's a tiny book, and I say tiny, it's about maybe eight inches by eight inches. And all three of the books are exactly the same size. I read online where someone said, man, I was disappointed because the books I buy today are not the same ones. The books were never any other size than this. They were always this size. And so it's interesting that that man was upset because he went to buy one for his granddaughter and it wasn't anything like what he remembered. He said it was a big tabletop picture book. Well, it never was. So That goes to show the experience that he was having and the Mm larger-than-life feeling of the artwork. Don't forget, the artwork is actually the size of a postcard, and it is standard, like, four-by-six postcard size in the book. So it's a big drawing in a tiny package. 
We're going to take a break here for a moment to thank a sponsor. This segment of our podcast is sponsored by BulletPad, the fun and intuitive app for writing outlines and organizing your thoughts on your iPad. With BulletPad, you can quickly create a hierarchical list of bullet points, giving structure to your great ideas. BulletPad is a great tool for writers and thinkers, featuring a simple but powerful toolbar above the keyboard to help you navigate your text with arrow keys and to change the indent of your bullet points. Use drag and drop to move your bullet points anywhere in the list. Use the zoom in feature to drill down on any section of your list or use zoom out to get the big picture view. BulletPad is available now for free. Just go to the App Store on your iPad and search for bullet pad. Because it's in a book, you don't get the same feeling as if you went to the art museum and you're looking at fine art on the wall. You can actually bring it down to your own surroundings, your own reality, your own personal understanding, and you don't have this otherworldly idea or view that it's something on a wall that you either have to like or don't like or somebody else has appreciated or didn't appreciate. You can actually own the art for its own sake and put your own spin on it at that moment of time. Some of the artwork does require a spin. There's no question about it. (laughs) It's so complex in many ways. I find myself just studying the art. I don't know about you, Bill, but I sometimes have the feeling that, gee, there's something here I'm really missing. There's more here. And I'm hungry for that. I want to know what it is that I'm missing. So I find myself enjoying these books over and over again, so much so that when we started talking about doing book reviews and discussions, we started making lists of all the books. And this was just like immediately jumped into my mind now. I haven't really read the books for years. And suddenly I find myself enjoying them all over again. I'm just saying that these books are just, they're so full And there's so much more to be gleaned from them every single time you go through that it's just so exciting and it's really fun. I would say the word fun comes to mind first and foremost when I think about the book. I know I was discussing the fact that I wanted to discuss these books on our podcast and one of my older sons said, well, why do you want to discuss that book? What is it you want to tell people about it? And I said, wow, it's really hard to just put that in one sentence because there's no way to tell someone about these books just in one sentence. But I just have to tell you, it's pure delight. Every single page has something on it. It's thought-provoking. I just sort of revel in them. That's my experience with the books. Uh, that that same individual, R.L.S.N., proposed an idea that are these books better equipped for some readers to see them than others. So I think his reference here was, and I'm not really sure if it was a judgmental reference, but I think he was wondering, well, do you have to be an art major or do you have to be an art history major? Or does it help if you went to college or didn't go to college? And I think that the art happens on such a basic level. And again, we come back to a picture postcard And we come back to an envelope with a stamp that you open up and pull a letter out of the inside. And I think every single one of us can deal with that at the level that we are at. And we can appreciate or hate the artwork individually, one piece to another. And I will guarantee every reader that there is going to be some piece that they'll fall in love with, that there is no possible way 
that they could read all three books and not come up with at least one piece in each book that they totally fall in love with. I can also guarantee that there are going to be at least one piece in each book that they're going to be perhaps repelled by. That they're going to go, oh, that is ugly. <laughs> and I don't know why did he put that there. The more that you look at it, you will probably come to an understanding of what the artist Griffin or Sabine had in mind when that piece of artwork was created. That, of course, brings me to one other interesting point. There was an interview question that Nick Bantock was asked, and I have to paraphrase it. I don't have it in front of me. But they asked him what it was like for a fine artist to put works of art, and really that's what they are. We have a fine artist who's trained as a fine artist, and he's putting works of art that normally would have frames, normally be offered to the public for sale to the public, possibly through an art show, possibly through a small art gallery, possibly even through exhibition on the wall in a major museum. And here he is attributing each of the works to a different person. Now, he has two different people that he's attributing the works to. One of them is uh, Griffin Moss, and the other person is Sabine Stroheim. It's almost like Griffin plagiarized his works and Sabine plagiarized his works because they're now their works. And so he has totally given his works up to someone else's name. And they said, this is not usual behavior for an artist. He answered that, yes, that's true. But he did get a vicarious thrill of not only putting words in their mouths, but also letting them tell part of the story through the development of their artwork. And as the artwork changed in temperament and in design, that it would evoke various feelings, even guttural feelings in the reader. And he was very much interested in having that happen, in not leading us so much as in letting us lead ourselves you know, through all three volumes. Almost as if he took on the persona of each of those characters as he was doing the artwork. So, yeah, very interesting perspective. Uh, which leads, leads us to think, you know, is there such a thing as artwork that's right or wrong? I mean, art is just so subjective. I think that this artwork is real on many, many different levels because as you go through the book and read and see the artwork, you know that the art is being done in a certain format because the artist is exposing a part of him or herself for a reason. And so there's always this question, what is the reason behind this artwork? And why is this person sending this particular piece of artwork to this person at this particular time, along with the words that are on it? You know, it's very interesting, very thought-provoking, very, very deep, but also just delightfully fun. You just really enjoy it. It's said that all novels expose enough of the author that they could be called autobiographical. Now, by that, I don't mean that the artist, the author, is always telling his own story because many, many authors tell a multiplicity of stories, even within their own careers, yet they are 
exposing parts of themselves as they write the story, some things they like and things that they don't like. Fine artists and musicians also expose their self by producing their work. There's an almost intimate exposure when the work is finished. They are setting themselves up for praise. They're setting themselves up for criticism. What we take away by viewing their work then becomes subject to our own inner experiences and our own inner development. This is, of course, why we feel compelled to judge it. I like it. I don't like it. It's interesting to come to understanding of this concept of the artist and musician intimately exposing themselves with their pieces of creation. We ask ourselves, does this whole aspect of intimately exposing yourself stifle some of us? It's why we did not become artists and musicians or We will not release the creations that are in our head. Is it because we're afraid of this intimate exposure? Is it because we're afraid of the judgment that comes from it? Whether we might be afraid of the praise as much as we might be afraid of the criticism? I don't know. What do you think, Kira? Well, I think um, we're in the process of getting over that, Bill. (laughs) We're, We're doing our best here. And our children have told us for years to do this kind of thing. We haven't shared ourselves. And here we are. I think you share what you can. And wonderful thing about life is that we all have our gifts. And I've always told my children that every single person on the face of the earth is gifted in some way or other. We have to honor that. Griffin and Sabine was very, very different. And it was a reach. It's certainly a genre sort of onto itself because the author of the books is an artist and he was uniquely qualified because of his background to do this kind of a book. It's something that you may not experience often in life because there aren't very many people out there who had all of the different elements in place to actually create this, I would say, richly artistic piece of art. And it it really is a piece of art. Even the written part is really intriguing. I think that each of us brings to life something special, and we do need to honor that, and we do need to begin to express it more. I think one of the enemies of producing from our own selves is this whole thing that we call perfectionism and wanting to be so perfect, wanting everything so right that we never are satisfied. We become afraid of just letting go, of just sharing. I think that's part of the fear of the intimate exposure. If we could be perfect every single moment, we'd be so happy to raise our hand and class and give the answer. And we'd be so happy to spell that word in the spelling bee. And we'd be so happy to get up in front of everyone and sing that song. And we'd be so happy to open our portfolio and show off our artwork. But perfectionism is impossible. As we know from what is in real life, that no one's going to like everything. It's a matter of taste. It's a matter of style. It's a matter of point of view. And it's a matter of time in culture. When some of the different art forms came out, they were not accepted. Van Gogh was not accepted when his work first came out. And in fact, he was uh, long dead before his work was appreciated by much of any audience. The same thing is true with pointillism. The same thing is true with cubism and Pablo Picasso. It's important to allow our own expression. 
as Kira said, every human has got something that they can contribute. And so I guess if one thing that we might leave with you is that everyone can be creative and everyone can share their creativity. Different concepts will change the culture. Different concepts will lead to growth. It will help change people's appreciation. And so just do it. Just do it. Thank you so much for listening today. We appreciate having you with us while we talk about some of these books that are so special to us. And if you're a member of our audience and you've enjoyed our show today, we'd like to ask you to please share it with your friends and family. And you can find this in all of our podcasts at iTunes Podcasts. Please look it up at Better Living Institute Book Talk Podcast. And you can find us on the web at betterlivinginstitute.com. Also, you can purchase the book that we've discussed today from a link right on our site. We do benefit a little financially, so we thank you ahead of time if you purchase your book that way. Well, that's our show. Please join us next time. For the Better Living Institute Book Talk Podcast, this is Kira Van Itterson. And this is Bill Van Itterson. So long, everyone. So long.